politics, culture, chaos. It's time to make sense of it all. It's time to have a little fun. This is your afternoon dose of sanity. This is the Rich Zioli Podcast. So I went out to lunch today and I saw these uh, these two guys sitting there having lunch, wearing masks on their faces. I mean, literally, they sat at the table for 30 minutes wearing masks until the food came. They even took their mask down to sip their beer and put it back up, and then the food came and the mask came off. Does, does, does food absorb COVID? Am I missing something? Does it, like a sponge, like it... Like in Ghostbusters, it just absorbs all the energy. I, I, I can't, I can't really figure it out. Good afternoon. Welcome to the podcast. It is March of 2022, right? Not 2020. I'm just making sure that I didn't go into one of my time warps again, right? All right. Well, back then, actually, Fauci told us not to wear masks. That's right. Oh, now he's saying to wear masks again, by the way. He's, he's telling everybody that's one of the lessons he learned was to wear masks. I uh, kid you not. Hope you're having a great day today. There's a lot to discuss, but first of all, let me just say that a Santo Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease doctor, and I know you might be thinking to yourself, I don't care what he has to say. Well, you should, because this is not over yet. Remember, they uh, are giving us this little bit of lapse of uh, this, this little freedom to enjoy until they decide that they're over it. And what scares me, of course, is that there, there's always going to be another variant out there in the world. And there's always going to be another election. <laughs> so there's always a reason for them to use another variant as an excuse to make us all uh, vote by mail again, for example. But here's what Fauci said in an interview that he did with The Washington Post. He said, well, I would not be surprised at all if we do see somewhat of an uptick, the extent of it and the degree to which it impacts seriousness of disease like hospitalizations and deaths remain to be seen. I don't really see, unless something changes dramatically, that there would be a major surge. The reason why I say I would not be surprised to see an uptick in infections is because the same conditions that are responsible for the upticks that you're seeing in other countries, particularly the UK, which for one reason or another, we seem to follow their pattern by a few weeks lag. And what's going on there are three issues that are very similar to what we see here. Namely, there's increasing dominance of the BA2 variant, which has a transmission advantage. It's more transmissible, and so when they go head-to-head with BA1, sooner or later, the BA2 becomes more dominant. Two, there's been a relaxation of restrictions, particularly the requirements for masks in indoor congregate settings. I don't know what the third issue was. Uh, so who cares, then? If, if we're not seeing an uptick in deaths and hospitalizations, then who, who cares? But, but you notice what happens, right? You, you see how this works. They say, what, what have you learned from, from COVID-19 and, and how it's evolved and what you would do? And he said, well, the one thing I've learned is, is um, we, have to, we, have, we have to have high-quality masks. We all have to have high-quality masks because of aerosol is a very important modality of spread, not just droplets, which has a lot to do with wearing masks and why it's so important to wear a high-quality mask. Do you, do you know who told you? The difference between an aerosolized virus and droplets, um, I said that, me, like a, a year and a half ago. I talked about that. How all these, the, the, the cloth masks, the gaiters, all the other nonsense, the, 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 even the, the Fugazi surgical masks, none of it was stopping the spread of COVID because of the fact that this was an aerosolized virus. An aerosolized virus, it did not spread by droplets like the common cold and the flu. And that's why you were not seeing people getting it and you still don't see it, people getting it outside because of the nature 
of the virus and the fact that it is, in fact, aerosolized, the modality of spread. So that's a key point right there. I just want to make that point very, very clear because I know, again, it seems like we are in a different time loop or something like that. Now, enough of COVID for today. I want to turn my attention to uh, the questioning right now of the potential next United States Supreme Court judge, Judge Jackson. All right. I don't know if she's going to get confirmed, and it's not because of the Republicans. It might be because of the Democrats, as she praised the police today when she was asked about the police by Senator Dianne Feinstein. There's been a couple things that I, I, I wanted to mention. There, there's, there's controversy over her sentencing regarding um, possession of child pornography. That that seems to be the big thing that they're hitting her with. She's also, you know, she was getting hit over the fact that she defended uh, Gitmo detainees. And her point was, look, you know, defense attorneys, they don't get to choose their clients, public defenders. And, you know, attorneys have a responsibility to defend clients. I don't think anybody's going to hold that against judges. I mean, judges, many of them started out as lawyers. Many of them started out as defense attorneys. So I, I don't think that's what's going to be the, the fatal blow here. And I'm not sure that... Uh, so far, her sentencing on the possession of child pornography is going to be a fatal blow either. It could be if she does not explain it in more detail. Ted Cruz did a, a very good job of of thoroughly questioning her on why many of those decisions were below the sentencing guidelines. She seemed rattled, and I don't think her answers were very good. But leaving that aside for a moment here, a couple of things that, as National Review pointed out, And you have to take all this with a very big grain of salt because typically Democrat appointed judges are almost invariably likely to all vote the same way. You know, you you might get over the years a Supreme Court justice who is appointed by a Republican and then they turn out to basically be a Democrat. Stephen Breyer um, is retiring, obviously, from the Supreme Court. Whoever fills that seat, it's presumed that he's going to vote along or she is going to vote along the lines that a Judge Breyer did and mostly vote like a Democrat. But we've seen instances where Republicans have appointed judges to the court and those judges have, even though they were appointed by a Republican, wound up voting along the lines with Democrats. It rarely happens the other way. You know, it really, we see with John Roberts all the time. I mean, John Roberts goes and votes with the Democrats half the time. But when's the last time you saw Elena Kagan cross the aisle to vote with the Republicans in a, in, in a, in a 5-4 decision? So that's one thing to take into account here, all right? But a couple points from so far in, the, in, in, in her nomination hearing. She affirmed that the Supreme Court has established that the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right. Asked by Chuck Grassley about Justice Stephen Breyer's tendency to cite international law as a source for interpreting the Constitution, Jackson said that she respectfully disagreed with her former boss and that international law should not be used to determine the meaning of the Constitution. That's huge. That's huge. First of all... Let's go and break down those two things, number one. First of all, the idea that the keep and bear arms is a fundamental right. A fundamental right, which is, it is obviously a fundamental right. Although that doesn't commit her to adhere to that view herself, but she believes that the Supreme Court has established that right. All right, that's number one. Number two, international law is one of those things that the left loves to throw around all the time, especially when it comes to climate change stuff. They'll bring up what Europe's doing. They'll bring up this. They'll bring up that in in something not in usually big name cases that you hear about. But the, the Supreme Court rules on a lot of things that never make the news. 
but it'll be something about an environmental crime or something like that or a fine or, you know. And then in the in the ruling there, a guy like Breyer would quote international law and how uh, how the Paris uh, Treaty Climate Accord affects this or what, blah, blah, blah. So we should not do any of that nonsense. We should only look at our own country and our own laws and our own constitution. So that's a, that's a big deal right there because also the left has a global globalist view of the world literally that the united states needs to be part of the global community and that our laws should be decided in conjunction with how it makes the people feel and blah 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 uh asked to name a justice whose philosophy resembles her own she could have named briar but she didn't she declined to name one instead pointing to her own record she has continued to speak movingly about the cops and her family and the role of and need for police so i heard that that answer today by the judge when she was talking about police and how important they are to her and how inspired she was by the service of her uncles and her brother and how dangerous the job is and i was waiting and waiting and waiting for a but they have to be held accountable or but we know there's bad cops or something it didn't didn't happen now look i'm no fool and i've done this before i I don't mean i don't mean i've never been nominated for the supreme court i don't mean that uh i mean i've done the the coaching of people for positions and and that's exactly the answer that i would tell her to give assuming that she already had the democrat votes lined up in in other words you would only get into the whole hold police accountable and make sure that uh the bad ones are rooted out and all that you'd only say that if you're trying to win democrat votes but if you already have the democrat votes lined up there's no need to say that. You, you, you're just trying to win over Republicans at that point. You, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? So at that point, she's just going to say what Republican senators would want to hear. Because every Democrat's going to vote for her already. That that answer actually told me more about the, the, the state of things than anything else because she was free to be able to say how much she respects the police and what a tough job it is. If this was a situation where you had some Democrat senators who are threatening to vote against her, then that would be a very different answer. But I also think, too, remember Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, they're not going to vote for a Supreme Court justice who's who's tough on the police, who, who, who believes that they should be defunded or something like that. So I think the reality is that barring a Manchin dissent, which I don't think he would, it seems like Judge Brown, Judge Jackson, should be has all the Democrats locked up already. She agreed with Lindsey Graham that radical Islamic groups are still at war with us, and that the authorization for the use of military force of two thousand one is still in effect. Asked by Diane Feinstein about super precedent status for Roe v. Wade, she simply discussed the normal standards for stare decisis and declined to apply any sort of elevated status for Roe. There is no such thing as a super precedent. That's something the left made up. They made that up. Like they make up, they, they make things up all the time. Either there's precedent or there isn't. And obviously, precedent does not have to be something that you adhere to every time it's it's a it's a basis it's a guiding principle of law obviously but there have been cases that have been overturned and knowing that there have been cases that have been overturned you know cases for example that said that uh, a slave was property which was you know overturned and separate but equal was constitutional which was overturned and other things knowing that cases have been overturned the left, because they just love Roe v. Wade, they do. They worship this decision. It's their, it's their, it's the, it's who they are. 
they then created this phony thing known as a super precedent, which doesn't exist. And they figured, well, if we can call it a super precedent, once again, we can manipulate language like we do all the time with everything else and get everybody else to say that. Well, then then we can hold Roe. Uh, it's not just merely then a, a previous decision, since previous decisions can, can be overturned. It's a super precedent, like a super duper precedent, a double secret probation precedent. Asked by Senator John Cornyn, Judge Jackson said that she had never heard of a judge describing a case as a super precedent. Again, now this really might just be that she's been very well prepared for this. And she's a very bright person. Obviously, you wouldn't get to this level if you weren't. And she knows who her audience is. And she's speaking to that audience. Certainly, that's a really important question. Uh, She went back and forth with Lindsey Graham over the idea of whether or not we are still at war. You know, Lindsey Graham loves war, obviously. So, I mean, from Lindsey's perspective, he wants to make sure that somebody... (laughs) I mean, somebody thinks we're at war here. He's, you know, I mean, he's got, it's Lindsay. You know what I mean? He's, uh, you know, my, oh my, I just hope that somebody sees it like that. Um, what can I say? Her, her, her answer on, on the police alone should give Democrats pause. If it was, if it was a real answer, if it was a real answer, then Democrats should be concerned because she holds police in, in, in very high regard. Um, but is it a real answer? Is, is it a real answer? Now, poli- the chiefs of police uh, had urged the Senate to confirm her, by the way. They had urged the Senate to confirm Judge Brown Jackson, saying that um, the International Associations of Chiefs of Police endorsed her as some Republicans attack her on week on crime. They sent a letter on Monday, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, urging senators to confirm U.S. Circuit Court Judge Jackson to the high court. They said Judge Jackson has several family members in law enforcement. We believe this has given her a deep understanding of and appreciation for the challenges and complexities confronting the policing profession, said Chief Dwight E. Henninger, who is the president. During her time as a judge, she has displayed her dedication to ensuring that our communities are safe and that the interests of justice are served. We believe that Judge Jackson's years of experience have shown that she has the temperament and qualifications to serve as the next Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. This endorsement comes a week before Jackson's hearings are set to begin in the committee. A number of Republican senators have questioned her public defender background as uh, being soft on crime. Now, uh, that's going to be still the sentencing issue regarding child pornography possession is going to be a big deal. No doubt about that. The other issue, too, is court packing. Uh, the left loves court packing. You know, they, the idea that they want a super court, as Count Grant, Stangelis, Spartacus, Booker, and the Tears of Rage Band has put out, they want as many justices as possible. Why, you ask? Why? Because uh, if they want to make sure that they win. And if they can't get something through Congress, then they'll try to get it through the courts. So they want 14 justices, ultimately, or 15 justices. That's what they ultimately want. It's basically, a mini legislature with enough uh, diversity to look like America Blah, 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 blah. So that the issues that are not popular with the American people, but are popular with the radical left, they can get through the courts. That's exactly what court packing is all about. Now, Roosevelt was the first one to try this when he wasn't uh, interning Japanese Americans and German Americans and Italian Americans uh, without due process. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, Mr. Internment, as Mark Levin calls him, was trying to pack the court because he the court was not going along with his uh, ridiculous agenda with his new deal. 
uh, New Deal 15.7 or whatever it is. Uh, so he decided he would just keep adding justices to, to the court, just keep adding justices to the court, and then eventually that he'd have enough votes. And it was shot down. The idea was shot down. Now it's out there again, this idea of changing the size of the court. And Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson agreed with Amy Coney Barrett on this point about the court. And let me uh, share with you this exchange because I think it's important. There were a couple key exchanges to this. And again, I'm just trying to look at this from the perspective of will she get nominated? Will she get confirmed? And what are the uh, the, the positives of this? Because I think she's going to be confirmed. And what are the potential downsides? And obviously also as well, is this saying what the judge thinks we want to hear or does she really believe this? And so, you know, obviously you have to pay attention to this as much as you possibly can. Uh, but here's the exchange regarding court packing. Take a listen. Another issue which has come up to my surprise, and I've spoken to my Republican colleagues about their fascination with it, is the notion of the composition of the Supreme Court, which euphemist- euphemistically is referred to as court packing. I have said on the floor, and I will repeat here, uh, there is exactly one living senator who has effectively changed the size of the Supreme Court. That was the Republican leader, Senator McConnell, who shrank the court to eight seats for nearly a year in 2016 when he blocked President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland. Now, that question on court packing was posed to Amy Coney Barrett, justice in the court, when she appeared before this committee. She was asked about it. She said, and I quote, could not opine on it. And on many other policy issues, then Judge Barrett said repeatedly she could not share her views, stating, and I quote, I will not express a view on a matter of public policy, especially one that is politically controversial, because that is inconsistent with the judicial role. I do believe we should have rules and traditions and precedents, but we shouldn't have a separate set of rules for Republican nominees and Democratic nominees. So Judge Jackson, if a senator were to ask you today about proposals about changing the current size of the Supreme Court, what would your response be? Senator, I agree with Justice Barrett in her um, her response to that question when she was asked before this committee. Again, my um, North Star is the consideration of the proper role of a judge in our constitutional scheme. And in my view, judges should not be speaking in to political issues um, and certainly not a nominee for uh, a position on the Supreme Court. So I agree with, with Justice Barrett. So I agree with Justice Barrett, okay? And, she, and her point was that, you know, this is a policy issue for Congress. The other question, too, was whether or not she ever called uh, the United States government, particularly President Bush and Donald Rumsfeld, war criminals, whether or not that ever happened. Senator Lindsey Graham asked her, did you ever accuse the U.S. government of acting as war criminals? She replied, I don't remember that accusation. I was making allegations to preserve issues on behalf of my clients. Uh, Senator Graham also said to to Judge Jackson that he she would not be treated the way that re- Republican nominees have been treated. In other words, nobody's going to savage her and accuse her of being a rapist, uh, uh, try to destroy her in front of her family, embarrass her, mock her. You know, all the things the left did to Judge Kavanaugh, for example. They're not going to be doing that. 
they're not going to be doing any of those things. So, you know, that's 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 good right there. That's really good. Uh, the other point, too, that I, I think is worth doing, and again, we're very early on the process here. We're, we're early on in the process. But so far, on many of these issues, it's either a situation where Judge Brown actually is much, because she said today she was talking with uh, Senator Mike Lee, and she described herself as being somebody who agrees you should look at the text of the statute and you should look at the text of the constitution and interpret it how it was written at the time it was written now that's exactly what conservative justices are supposed to say that you should look at it based on the time in which it was written not that you should look at it through the lens of the modern day to help the people and blah 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 what i don't know is whether or not this is because she's been expertly coached to say this because she knows that her audience is now some Republicans. They, they, Biden would love nothing more than if he can get this nominee through and get a couple of people on the Republican side of the aisle to come out and back her. Uh, he would love that. He would love that. Uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee asked Judge Jackson if she would be invoking critical race theory into the country's legal system. She said, you once wrote that every judge has, and I quote, personal hidden agendas, and quote, does that influence how they decide cases? So I can only wonder, what's your hidden agenda? She asked, is it to let violent criminals, cop killers, and child predators go back to the streets? Is it to restrict parental rights and expand government's reach into our schools and our private family decisions? Is it to support the radical left's attempt to pack the Supreme Court? You have praised the 1619 Project, which argues the U.S. is a fundamentally racist country. And you have made clear that you believe judges must consider critical race theory when deciding how to sentence criminal defendants. Is it your personal hidden agenda to incorporate critical race theory into our legal system? These are answers that the American people need to know. The senator's remarks were likely a reference to a lecture that Judge Jackson gave in 2020. She was discussing the effort by uh, the 1619 Project founder to present slavery and racism as crucial elements of America's founding and beyond. She said, quote, Nicole Hannah Jones highlights the irony of the situation even further when she notes that at the top, the very moment that Thomas Jefferson penned the self-evident truths of the Declaration of Independence, a black relative, a slave had been brought into his office to serve him. Thus, it is Jones' provocative thesis that the America that was born in 1776 was not the perfect union that it purported to be, and that actually only through the hard work, struggles, and sacrifices of African Americans over the past two centuries that the United States has finally become the free nation that the founders initially touted. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's questions regarding all of this, and they'll have to be fleshed out through this. So far, at least, it doesn't seem like there's been a kill shot. It's early on in the process, though, no doubt about that. Let's cut through the BS. This is the Rich Zioli Podcast. You know, I've said that if the left wants this culture war of uh, of transgender athletes and teaching the stuff in schools and everything, they, they should bring it because they're going to lose. They're going to lose big time. The guy who's capitalizing on this the most right now, and he's so smart, is Governor Ron DeSantis. Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, you, you've probably heard about the governor of Indiana who just vetoed a bill of a women's sports bill and indiana governor eric holcomb vetoed a bill that would have barred biological males from competing in women's sports at the k-12 level it was a surprising reversal from the position a few weeks ago he signaled support for the legislation 
and uh, he vetoed it. And, and in a letter to the Speaker of the House, Republican governors argued there was no evidence to support the claim that there is an existing problem in K-12 sports in Indiana that requires further state government intervention with regard to transgender athletes. So, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida has taken a different approach. Governor DeSantis' approach now is to make this issue something very front and center on the side of supporting biological women in sports. So let me share with you today, this is from Governor DeSantis' press conference in Florida. Uh, Here we go. If you look at what the NCAA has done uh, by allowing basically men to compete in women's athletics, in this case, the swimming, you had the number one woman who finished was from Sarasota, Emin Wyant. She won the silver medal. She's been an absolute superstar her whole career. She trains, I mean, to to compete at that level is very, very difficult. And you don't just roll out of bed and do it. That takes grit. That takes determination. And she's been an absolute superstar. And she had the fastest time uh, of any woman in college athletics. Now, the NCAA uh, is basically taking efforts to destroy women's athletics. They're trying to undermine the integrity of the competition, and they're crowning somebody else uh, the woman's champion. And we think that's wrong. And so in Florida, I'm going to be uh, later. This is a Floridian who I think deserves to be recognized. You know, we're going to be doing a proclamation uh, saying uh, that Emma is the best female swimmer in the 500 meter freestyle because she earned that and we need to stop allowing organizations like the NCAA to perpetuate frauds on the public and that's exactly what they're doing they are putting ideology ahead of opportunity for women athletes uh, and I think that there's just some people that are afraid to speak out um, and, and, and save what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. And so in Florida, we're going to be very clear when they try to do things like that, when they try to undermine the integrity of competition, when they try to um, counteract uh, the ability of women uh, to realize their dreams, uh, we, we are going to speak out about that. And so we'll be issuing uh, that proclamation just because, you know, as somebody that was uh, – was such a great athlete in Florida, has now moved on to the University of Virginia. You know, we need to honor that appropriately. And if the NCAA was willing to actually uh, ensure the integrity of women's competition, she would have been crowned national champion. Yeah, good. Good for him. Good for him. Smart. It is really smart. No doubt about it. It is really smart to do that, in my opinion. Why not? Because parents are not on the side. Okay, they are they are not on the side of this woke nonsense in schools. They're they're not. It's just not something that is okay. It's not okay. And I'm glad that Ron DeSantis is doing this. Now, the other issue too is critical race theory. And Ron DeSantis is pushing back on that as well. So the two issues that are going on in schools right now are this whole transgender education stuff and then biological males competing as women and and all this stuff. And, of course, in the Florida bill, the quote-unquote don't say gay bill, which doesn't say that, and allows – it bars, I should say, the state from teaching our children in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade about this stuff, okay? The other issue is critical race theory. Now – This is the other question that Judge Jackson is going to have to answer for. According to an article from Fox News, she serves on the board of the Georgetown Day School, which promotes books by originators of critical race theory. 
Okay, so this elite private school in Washington, D.C., she's on the board of trustees for this for this school. And the questionnaire for the Senate Judiciary Committee says that she has been a board of trustees member at the Georgetown Day School since 2019 and a member of the Georgetown Day School community for nearly a decade. She says, since becoming part of the Georgetown Day School community seven years ago, Patrick and I have witnessed the transformative power of a rigorous progressive education that is dedicated to fostering critical thinking, independence, and social justice. All right. Georgetown Day School's website indicates that the Board of Trustees is involved with executing their anti-racism action plan, which includes reviewing and revising, quote, current language around community expectations and reviewing anti-racist work to inform potential governance changes. We at Georgetown Day School have been engaging across the community to further define and deepen our commitments to being an anti-racist institution and staying true to our founding mission. We have identified a path forward for the institution, and we want to transparently share how we have performed in meetings, our commitments for the 2021 school year and beyond. Lisa Fairfax, the chairwoman of the Board of Trustees and a longtime friend of Judge Jackson, spoke on her behalf Monday during the opening day of Jackson's confirmation hearing. She said, or excuse me, I keep reading from this. Some anti-racist resources recommended by the school include Richard Delgado's Critical Race Theory, a video by Kimberly Crenshaw entitled The Urgency of Intersectionality, and Peggy McIntosh's White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Delgado and Crenshaw are notable originators of CRT. Also on the list is Abram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which declares that capitalism is essentially racist and racism is essentially capitalist. Kendi argues in the book that racial discrimination is acceptable if it's aimed at creating equity or, or equal outcomes. Racial discrimination is acceptable if it's aimed at creating equity or equal outcomes. That's where the reverse discrimination, when the left thinks it's okay to do that. Quotas and affirmative action and that sort of thing. The defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. He writes in the book, if discrimination is creating equity, then it's anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. Kendi, Ibrahim X. Kendi, a proponent of CRT, has previously called for a constitutional amendment that would make racial inequity over a certain threshold and racist ideas by public officials unconstitutional. In June 2020, Georgetown Day School's Instagram account promoted a panel forum that included Kendi and called him one of the megastars in the fight for racial equity. Remember, equity is different from equality. Equity means everybody gets the same. Equality means everybody's treated the same. So there's a difference. you got to understand that Equity is usually referring to economics and capitalism, and that's usually the transformation to socialism. Equality, which is a good thing, is making sure that everybody gets the same shot at something in life. Equity means everybody gets the same in life. In February 2020, a first grade teacher detailed in a post on Georgetown Day School's website how they recently conducted a segregation simulation to give their students a tiny peek at the emotional, psychological impact of segregation. Uh, tuition there starts at just under $40,000 for pre-K students and goes up to nearly $47,000 for high school seniors. Oof, ah, wow. Some of the conferences they went to as part of their diversity, equity, and inclusion, a couple of the conferences listed for the faculty include White Privilege Conference and People of Color Conference. Now, Judge Jackson's board service, according to the White House, is a personal activity that has no relation to her work as a judge. She said, 
critical race theory is one of the myriad types of law that her students that that, that she tells her students to factor in for sentencing. Senator Marsha Blackburn said Monday that Jackson's board position raises red flags and saying, you serve on the board of a school that teaches kindergartners, five-year-old children that they can choose their gender and teaches them about so-called white privilege. The school is hosting an organization called Woke Kindergarten and pushes an anti-racist education program for white families. Your public endorsement of this type of progressive indoctrination of our children causes one great concern when it comes to how you may rule on cases involving parental rights. So that is another big issue that Judge Jackson needs to answer for. And they need to discuss it and they need to bring it up. No doubt about that. That is something that has to happen. But, you know, these two issues right now between progressive education and CRT and then the other issue, too, of this LGBTQI plus plus ABCD, EFG, all this stuff right now that's happening. What what. The real question that I have with all of this is, is this going to be a winning issue for Republicans in November? And I truly do believe it will be. I really do. I believe it's going to be a winning issue for them. And the reason why I believe that is, I think most parents have had it. I think most parents have finally woken up to what's happening. And most parents have said, enough is enough. And because of that fact, those parents that previously were not engaged in things like this are now engaged in a big, big way. And that engagement is going to take them all the way to November. There's no doubt in my mind about that fact. <clears throat> Regarding critical race theory, Senator Ted Cruz asked Judge Jackson about this today. And this is how the exchange went. But I've never studied critical race theory and I've never used it. It doesn't come up in the work that I do as a judge. So so with respect, I, I find that a curious statement uh, because... Um, you gave a speech in April of 2015 uh, at the University of Chicago in which you described the job you do as a judge. And you said sentencing is just plain interesting because it melds together myriad types of law, criminal law, and of course, constitutional law, critical race theory. So you described in a speech to a law school what you were doing as critical race theory. Uh, and so I guess I would ask, what, what did you mean by that when you gave that speech? With respect, Senator, um, the quote that you are mentioning there um, was about sentencing policy. It was not about sentencing. Um, I was talking about the policy uh, determinations of bodies like the Sentencing Commission when they look at a laundry list of various academic subjects as they consider what the policies should be. Okay, but Critical you, but you race were vice chair of the Sentencing Commission, so let me ask again, what did you mean by, because that was an official responsibility of yours, what, what did I you meant, mean by what you were doing was critical race? What I meant was that there are a number of, that that uh, slide does not show the entire laundry list of different uh, academic disciplines that I said um, relate to sentencing policy, but none of that relates to what I do as a judge. You know, it, it's it's certainly cause for concern, no doubt about that, and something that has to be examined. And this is also, too, these books at the Country Day School or the Georgetown Day School, and this is a big part of this. And again, you know, thinking in terms of when I said earlier, there has not been a kill shot yet, and I don't mean that literally, obviously. Uh, I don't think that for a second Republicans should let 
their foot off the gas when it comes to trying to understand the philosophy and the ideology of Judge Jackson because it's it, 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 it's critical. These issues are probably going to go before the court in one way or another at some point in the future. So if she's going to be an activist judge in wanting to see this curriculum in classrooms, that's going to be very problematic. And I don't know if she is. I want to understand that. She's, she's said a lot of things that sound good in terms of textualism and originalism and looking at how amendments are written, that sort of thing. But there's also a lot of warning flags around this whole notion, for example, of the kind of things that are at this very, very expensive elitist day school. Because I've long told you, schools are indoctrination camps. That's what their purpose is. It really is. It's become the purpose. It's it's no longer about teaching our kids in education. It's now about getting them to think a certain way. And that's why all these corporations are going woke now is because they hire people who've gone to places like the Georgetown Country Day School and then Georgetown and then other, you know, Harvard and Yale. And then they come to work for these corporations and they bring their wokeism with them. And they've been learning this woke crap since they were five years old. So is it any surprise that when they get to corporate America, this is this is the world that they believe this is their worldview and this is what they want. Of course, it's what they believe. Senator Ted Cruz asking Judge Jackson if she agrees with the book Anti-Racist Baby. So, Judge Jackson, all of us will agree that, that no one should be discriminated against because of race. When you just testified a minute ago that you didn't know if critical race theory was taught in K through 12, I, I will confess I, I find that statement a little hard to reconcile uh, with the public record, because if you look at the Georgetown Day School's curriculum, it is filled and overflowing with critical race theory, that, that among the, doc, the books that are either assigned or recommended, uh, they include critical race theory, an introduction. Uh, they include the end of policing and ad an advocacy for abolishing police. They include how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi. They include literally stacks and stacks of books, and I'll tell you two of the ones that were most stunning. They include a book called Anti-Racist Baby uh, by Ibram Kendi. And there are portions of this book that, that, that I find really quite remarkable. One portion of the book says babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There is no neutrality. Another portion of the book they recommend to babies confess when being racist. Now, this is a book that is taught at Georgetown Day School to students in pre-K through second grade, so four through seven years old. Um, do, do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist? Senator. I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. But what I will say is that when you asked me whether or not this was taught in schools, critical race theory, my understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools and 
to the extent that you were asking the question, I understood you to be addressing public schools. Georgetown Day School, just like the religious school that Justice Barrett was on the board of, is a private school. Okay, so, so you agree critical race theory is taught at Georgetown Day School? I don't know because the board is not, um, the board does not control the curriculum. The board does not focus on that. That's not what we do as board members. So I'm actually not sure. Well, and I'll note that the board is is chaired by Professor Fairfax, your college roommate who introduced you yesterday. So the two of you serve on the board together. Um, another book that is on the uh, summer reading for third through fifth grade is a book called Stamp for Kids, again by Ibram Kendi. Uh, I read the entirety of the book, and I will say it is uh, an astonishing book. Uh, on page 33, it asks the question, can we send white people back to Europe? That's on 33. That's what's being given to eight and nine years old. It also, on page 115, says the idea that we should pretend not to see racism is connected to the idea that we should pretend not to see color. It's called colorblindness. Skipping ahead, here's what's wrong with this. It's ridiculous. Skin color is something we all absolutely see. Skipping ahead, so to pretend not to see color is pretty convenient if you don't actually want to stamp out racism in the first place. Now, what this book argues for is the exact opposite of what Dr. King spoke about on the floor of the, of the Lincoln Memorial. And, and are you comfortable uh, with, with these ideas being taught to children as young as four in, in respect to the first book, as young as eight and nine in respect to the second book? Senator, I have not reviewed any of those books, any of those ideas. They don't come up in my work as a judge, which I'm respectfully here to address. In my work as a judge, which is evidenced from my near decade on the bench. Okay, good. I am then, then let's go back to, to your work as a judge. And, and so, again, this is about trying to understand the core philosophy here of what she believes and 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 in these cases and 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 there's a lot here to it obviously um right now senator ben sass is asking her her opinion with regards to textualism and that sort of thing so um a lot of this now is is about understanding the real person here who is who is the judge and what is her thinking and what is going to guide her and what is going to be her philosophy as she gets on the bench and most likely it's going to be a philosophy of just voting with the other Democrats on the court. Most likely. But there are some things she said earlier, like I said, that sound very hopeful for those of us who believe that a judge should be an originalist and a textualist and just interpret the Constitution as it's written. But again, my spidey sense tells me, my fugazi sense tells me that that might be more of a product of very thorough coaching than anything else. So that is what concerns me right there with that. But we'll see. It's early in the process. Like I said... We'll continue to monitor all of this for you. Her uh, pro-police answer today probably upset some on the left, but again, I don't, I don't think, I don't particularly think that that she has to worry about losing votes from Democrats. I think it's more about the fact of whether or not she has to gain some Republican votes. I'll leave you with Senator Mike Lee asking about this conviction here with conviction guidelines uh, regarding child pornography. Ian. In these cases, as I understand it, all 10 of the cases that we've reviewed on, on record where you've sent someone to a, for a child pornography conviction, 
In all 10 of those cases, you, you departed from the guidelines uh, and departed downward. It's hard for me to understand departing from those in every case you've got because it's not supposed to, isn't a departure supposed to be grounded in uh, a finding that it's outside the heartland of, of, of cases in that range, uh, cases of that sort? Yes, Senator. And as I said before, these are horrible cases that involve terrible crimes. And the court is looking at all of the evidence consistent with Congress's factors for sentencing. The guidelines are one factor. The guidelines are one factor, which she obviously did not follow in many of these times. So that's a big part of the issue of it. Guidelines are one factor, sure, but... Certainly, when it comes to child pornography, if you're not going to follow those guidelines, you better have a really, really, really good answer for why you didn't. And especially if if you might have called U.S. officials war criminals, you better have a really good answer for that as well. Like CNN contributor Laura Coates said, that whether or not that answer is a good answer or not is something we will see in the coming days to come. Enjoy the day. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I appreciate it.